noticing you've become distracted, the waking up from the distraction is the moment not of failure, but of success. I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business, it's about contribution, it's about meaning. That is what we seek. That is what we truly want. And you absolutely are here to serve the world. And I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Thanks to Indeed for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever. Every hire is critical. Indeed is the number one job site in the world. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash dreamjob. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Also, thanks to Jenny Life. Ladies, listen up. Not only do men have more life insurance than women, they have twice as much coverage. Jenny Life wants to shrink that gap. It doesn't matter if you're a working mom, single mom, expecting mom, single, or if your kids are four-legged fur babies, you still need life insurance. Go to JennyLife.com slash DreamJob to get a free quote right now. And thanks to Hello Tushy. Hello Tushy is a sleep bidet attachment that clips onto your toilet and sprays your bottom clean with fresh water. It's the best thing you can do for that tush, and it starts at just $79. Go to hellotushy.com slash dreamjob to get 10% off your order. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I hope that you guys had a beautiful weekend. We're in the middle of the Jewish New Year. It was just Rosh Hashanah. And a couple days ago... I posted about this on Instagram. We had one of the most beautiful moments as a family. You know, sometimes you're walking through what seems like a normal day and then out of the blue, you're just smack in one of the best moments of your life. So we had one of those moments. We were running around doing some errands and getting ready for the Jewish New Year. And we made time to go to the ocean to do this. There's a beautiful tradition called Tashlik. This is where you throw breadcrumbs in the ocean to let go of anything that's no longer serving you from the previous year. So we went to the ocean and not one other person was there. It was as if God made the sky and the water just for us to enjoy. Just me, my husband, my girl is just sitting at the edge of the world. So beautiful. And everyone was so into it. And my kids, you know, they're little, they're four, seven and eight. And my youngest one was like, she threw in her breadcrumbs and she says, I don't want to wake mommy up in the middle of the night anymore. And my oldest one says, I don't want to be mean to my little sisters. And my middle one says, I want to be more grateful. And it just went on and on like this for 30 minutes. Every one of us, me, my husband, my kids, just like taking breadcrumbs, throwing them in. And with everyone just saying something we wanted to let go of, something that just we didn't want to do anymore so we could be a better version of us this new year. And we were throwing in the breadcrumbs and watching the fish just like eat it all up. And I said, I want to learn to have more patience. And my kid said, me too, me three, me four. And I said, I want to let go of my tendency to worry or to try to control. And I want to just try to allow things and receive more. And I said, I just want to try to like relax and allow more. And, you know, the thing is, you guys, growth is Ooh, it's, it's intense. It's not easy. And life can be so challenging. But then all of a sudden, you're in the middle of a moment like this, and you realize just how amazing it can be. And you, you're not expecting it. So here's to a sweet new year. Even if you don't celebrate, I think all of us could use a reason to feel like whatever we just went through is ending and we're ushering in a new season something good and healthy and sweet. So happy new year to all of those who are celebrating and to everyone else. May the start of this fall just bring in something so, so good. 
So today we have another guest who's just going to blow your mind. I had the honor of talking with Dan Harris. He's an ABC News anchor, best-selling author, podcaster, and the co-founder of 10% Happier. You've probably seen him on Good Morning America or Nightline, but I'm personally a big fan of his work in meditation. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. And he co-wrote Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Plus, he's working on a new book and he's going to give us a little sneak peek into what that's all about. You might want to listen to his awesome podcast called 10% Happier, where he explores happiness from all angles, how to train the mind to have more happiness, have more calm, generosity, compassion, and connection. His guests include, oh, you know, just the Dalai Lama and Angela Duckworth and legendary meditation teachers, scientists, and even some celebrities, leading researchers in areas such as social anxiety, bias, creativity, productivity, and relationships. Everything he does is just phenomenal. And today we're going to talk about how we can use mindfulness meditation to level up and step into into that fuller, happier version of ourselves. And even if you aren't someone who's tried it out, I highly recommend you connect to Dan's work because he started out as a complete skeptic and he spells out the process and benefits in a way that make it actually seem like something you might want to try. So without further ado, please welcome the incredible Dan Harris. Dan Harris, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I know that you're super busy and you're doing all these really important things in the world. I love your podcast. I think it makes a huge impact and I don't think it, I, I know it does. I want you to share a little bit about sort of how you even got to that place of writing the book, doing the podcast. So would you mind sort of talking about the journey of, of how you even got into what you're doing now? Sure. I'll keep it reasonably brief just in case, uh, since since I've been telling it for more than six years. We're uh, here uh, for it. We're here for it. Okay. Uh, the backstory is that I had a panic attack on national television on Good Morning America, obscure little news broadcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this was actually quite a while ago, back in 2004. And it was a June morning. I, I was filling in as the news reader. That's a position that actually no longer exists. We used to have somebody come on at the top of every hour and read the news headlines. And mm. at, that, at that time, it was the job was filled by Robin Roberts, who's now one of the main hosts of the show. But mm -hmm. she was out that day and I was doing the job. And the job was really to come on at the top of each hour and read some voiceovers, little news items off of the teleprompter. And I've been <laughs> to a news anchor since I was 22 and I was in my mid thirties at this time. And I had done this very job many times. So I had no reason to foresee what was about to happen, which was that my body just went into a mutiny. I, I, my lungs seized up. My heart was racing. My palms were sweating. My mouth dried up. I really just couldn't speak, which is a problem because mm. that's your job when you're a news anchor. And you know, it was this vicious cycle because as my body kept getting worse, my mind would get worse. And then as I freaked out psychologically, the body responds physiologically and it just feeds yeah. on itself. And it all happened very fast. And people who watch the video sometimes say, you know, it looks, it's not good, but it doesn't look like, I don't know if you, you remember Albert Brooks breaking yes. out in flop yes. sweat in broadcast news. It doesn't look like that. And the reason is that I had the luxury of tossing it back to the main hosts of the show at that time, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. It was clear I couldn't really continue. So I sort of squeaked out a back to you. And so it was very embarrassing, very scary. So uh, scary and so public and yes, so humiliating yes, and, yes. and what you must have been feeling. I mean, it sounds like you really lost control and felt like you might pass out? Like who knew what was going to come next? I mean, that's a terrifying feeling. Yeah. I think if I had been on my own, if I didn't have other hosts to, you know, pass the verbal baton along to, I probably would have ripped the mic off and run away. Uh, it was that bad. So, so to answer your question, so what was connection between this and meditation? So I, after this incident, I went to a doctor who asked a bunch of questions to try to figure out what was going wrong. It was a, a psychiatrist who specialized in panic. One of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I said, sheepishly, yes. And he said, uh, he didn't say this, but he gave me a look that said, okay, idiot, mystery solved. And uh, <laughs> oh, he pointed God. out that he, even though I hadn't been doing drugs that much, so I, I should step back and just say that it, this was in 2004. So I was... Uh, a very young and new correspondent at ABC News when 9-11 happened three years prior. Wow. And 
volunteered quite eagerly after 9-11 to go overseas to cover whatever was going to happen next. Mm. So then ended up spending a ton of time in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, and then a lot of time in Iraq. And in the middle of all of that, I came home, got depressed, didn't know I was depressed, mm. and started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. I had never done hard drugs before. I wasn't doing it all the time. It wasn't like yeah. I was just getting high all the time and I wasn't high on the air. But the doctor yeah. explained that even though I, my drug use was sort of unspectacular, it was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely that I would uh, have a panic attack. Wow. And so just to tie a bow wow. around this, I didn't start meditating <laughs> in, in the doctor's office that day, but quitting drugs, starting intensive therapy ultimately led me to meditation. And that's kind of where the story ends and begins at the same time. It really is like a movie and it actually happened to you. But all of those pieces, I mean, when you really hear the context of how much trauma you were experiencing, um, just being in those places and you're probably an empath. So you probably felt more than you realize you did. And then being in such a high pressure situation at the same time and being so young, it's amazing to hear the context of how all of those things sort of relate to one another. It makes so much sense. So you write this book, which has the best title of any book, 10% Happier, because it's so doable, right? It's not like you're somewhere in some lofty high tower. It's really like, could you be 10% happier, right? So what did that journey look like for you first? Before you write the book, how did you become 10% happier? So after the panic attack, I started seeing this shrink regularly and I stopped doing drugs and something else happened simultaneously, which is that I started covering faith and spirituality for ABC News, even though I'm a lifelong atheist who was raised in the People's Republic of Massachusetts by um, <laughs> pair of left of Trotsky scientists. Um, <laughs> I uh, was assigned by my mentor at the time, Peter Jennings, to start covering faith and spirituality. I didn't want to do this, but I, it actually opened my eyes to a lot of things. Not that I found religion, I didn't, but I saw that I was, I had a kind of atheistic dogmatism that mm. I, th I think shaved down a little bit toward ag uh, respectful agnosticism. Mm -hmm. And I saw the value of having a worldview that transcends your own narrow interests. You know, I, I, you referred to me before as probably an empath. I would say that's actually maybe not true. Not that I lack empathy. I'm not a sociopath, but I do struggle with kind of a overweening self-interest. And uh, so to have a broader view was re really compelling to me. I, in fact, I could see the self-interest in having a broader view. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> So I, as a result of covering this beat that I didn't want, I started to encounter self-help and I ended up reading a book by a guy named Eckhart Tolle, mm -hmm. um, who writes all about the, what he calls the ego or the voice in your head, this inner narrator we all have that is, you know, chasing us out of bed in the morning and, you know, has us constantly wanting stuff or not wanting stuff or thinking right. about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of what, whatever's happening right now, or constantly judging people or judging ourselves. This swirling cacophony, which is owning us most of the time because we're unaware that we're having this nonstop conversation with ourselves, which if we broadcast aloud, we would be locked up. And oh that was just such a huge insight for me. That insight is what ultimately landed me on Buddhism. And the Buddha actually has practical, actionable advice for dealing with this human condition and his advice entails meditation. And I reflexively rejected it at first because that's one of my not so great characteristics, which is a kind of automatic judgment uh, sometimes. But then I discovered that there was all this scientific evidence at which at this point in, in about 2008, 2009, that scientific evidence in support of meditation was not very well publicized. Mm -hmm. And I had two thoughts. One is I'm gonna try this for myself. And two, as I started doing it and realizing it really did help me, you know, it didn't solve all of my problems, but it did give me some distance from the aforementioned swirling cacophony. 
I had two thoughts. One is I'm going to do this. And two is, oh yeah, there's a sort of entrepreneurial opening here because this science hasn't been well publicized. And most of the people who talk about meditation do it in a rather cloying, annoying way. Yep. So <laughs> maybe I should write a book where I use the F word a lot and tell embarrassing stories and see if I can appeal to skeptics. And so you did. And the world ate it up. I mean, it's not easy to be a New York Times bestseller. It really isn't, especially when you're not already you know, Beyonce, right? Why do you think it really worked, that book? Why do you think people really heard you and actually made some changes in their life? I think there were two things going on, both of which are, are very lucky for me. One is the book came out in 2014, right as the meditation hype cycle was ginning up. Right. So it just kind of hit at exactly the right time when historic forces were opening people's eyes anyway, because the science was starting to get more well publicized. There were apps popping up. It was just like kind of bubbling culturally. So that was one thing. And the other thing is that I am employed by the what is probably the largest media company on earth, Disney, which owns ABC News. And my boss has made the decision to actively promote this book because I think they saw it as a good public health message. And as a consequence... To my great surprise, and by, frankly, to the surprise of my publisher, who only, they only, the initial print run was 15,000. They, mm -hmm. nobody thought this book was going to be a success, mm -hmm. least of all me. Um, <laughs> and so I think as a result of those two things, and maybe as a result also of, of the, what we were talking about before, that I was talking about it in a different way, it got pretty popular, which was really cool. Super cool. And you know what's also super cool is how self-aware you are. I mean, we've done over 300 episodes of the show. I think I can easily say you're the most self-aware person. What's really beautiful, and maybe this is part of your meditation practice, you kind of just have no shame when you say what you say about yourself. Like, oh, I'm actually really not that way. I can be rather judgmental. It's just holding space for what's so with no shame. And it just, it's so refreshing to be around, to hear you the way you speak about yourself. Uh, I wish that we all could like invite all parts of ourself to the table like that. Mm. I think you, you probably don't realize how much just you being that way gives people permission to come closer to what you have to say. So that's really cool. I just want to point that out. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that. And I just, uh, it's actually kind of the subject of the next book I'm writing. Um, I actually, no way. <laughs> Mercifully set aside the book and uh, because you gave me an excuse to not write for a, a little while. Um, I was working on it a whole morning before having this conversation with you. And, you know, it's a learned thing. I mean, part of it is uh, self-obsession in that um, as a, any memoirist, which I guess I am now, is got to be somewhat obsessed with her, him or herself or themselves. But it, it's also, you use the phrase, no shame, and I think actually there's often that's used, and I know you didn't do this, but often having no shame is used in a pejorative sense. But I actually, there should be a resuscitation of that phrase because shame is totally useless. Yep. And it is actually egotistical because it's taking whatever you're embarrassed about and making it all about you. Whereas there's a sort of, warmer, depersonalized view that you can start to look at your own ugliness with some warmth and without personalizing it so much. So exactly. that's, there's two things there. One is to see that, okay, so for me, I definitely have a pronounced selfish streak. What is that? Well, that's just like some program that was injected into yep. me by the culture or by my parents or whatever. Yep that I developed as a five-year-old to protect myself. So this is mm -hmm. the organism trying in an awkward and not so skillful way to protect itself. So can you view that as like, all right, you know, uh, blow that neurotic program a kiss and th then don't be owned by it. So you don't have to struggle with it so much. You don't have to slay the dragons as like give them a hug. And that is a kind of radical disarmament 
that allows you not to be so owned by the parts totally. of your personality that you don't like and to see it not as so personal, some unique bespoke dysfunction, but as, you know, just one aspect of the human repertoire. Mm-hmm. Oh, you said that so well. And that's what my mindfulness teacher always says is when you get up in the morning, have tea and invite all parts of yourself, the parts that self-sabotage, the parts that are brave, but all of it is welcome because we are so much bigger than that. And I think that that's the whole beauty of what I experience, I think most people experience this when they're meditating, even though it causes me tremendous anxiety at times and, and I get caught up in, in a lot of my own stuff with it. But when it works for me, it's like you said, it's separating yourself from this chaos and you remove yourself from this ego that's like, I'm, you know, I'm bad, I'm good, I'm tall, I'm thin. It's like you're, you're so much more than all of that, right? There's so many facets and we believe everything that we think, right? Thoughts are not facts. This conversation's amazing, but before we keep going, let's just thank our sponsors. Ladies, listen up. Not only do men have more life insurance than women, they have twice as much coverage. Jenny Life wants to shrink that gap. Whether you're a working mom, single mom, expecting mom, if you're single or if your kids are four-legged fur babies, you still need life insurance. You need Jenny Life. I have three young daughters and I'm the breadwinner for my family. So to me, it's high priority to make sure I have life insurance set up in case... God forbid something would happen. And Jenny Life makes it fast and easy for women to know their families will be taken care of with life insurance that's uniquely built for your needs. With Jenny Life, you can get your life insurance policy without blood work or unnecessary red tape. And what I love is that you can do it all online from your own home. They ask five simple questions, curate plans from dozens of A-rated insurance carriers, and give you a personalized, budget-friendly life insurance quote in seconds. Life insurance is something every woman should have in place because every family deserves a secure financial future. So take a few minutes to get your Jenny Life policy right now. Visit at JennyLife.com slash DreamJob to get a free quote right now. That's JennyLife.com slash DreamJob for your life insurance quote today. JennyLife.com slash DreamJob. Introducing the latest in tush cleaning technology, water. Get with the program and clean your butt with a bidet. Go to hellotushy.com slash dream job, get 10% off. It's hard to believe that when we go to the bathroom in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. For years, bidets have been available, but they usually cost thousands of dollars. The Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean butts to everyone with a precise stream of fresh water, and it only costs $79. I love it because it's really easy to set up, just attach it to your existing toilet, and I can feel good about using it because it requires requires no electricity or additional plumbing and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months and it's great for the environment. Ditch paper products and uncomfortable chafing when you switch to the soothing cleansing stream of water from a Hello Tushy Bidet attachment. And every Hello Tushy Bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee with a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush. Go to hellotushy.com slash dreamjob to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash dreamjob job for 10% off hellotushy.com slash dream job. I'm curious in your process because you've now spoken to so many people who've been trying this on people who are brilliant at it, you, you know, and you've been doing it for a while. What is the through line? Do you think of where we get the most stuck as human beings with our thoughts? Like, is there one thought that's pretty universal that gets us all tripped up that comes back around quite often? That's a great question. I don't know that I can answer it in a macro sense. I'll just speak from experience personally. Okay. Yeah. It's where I get the most stuck is this kind of concretizing or making permanent and unalterable or making bad these parts of my personality. You talked about having tea. I'm not a tea drinker and probably wouldn't use tea analogies personally <laughs> just because it's, uh, it's sort of typical. But, um, you know, the idea that you've got this inner set of characters fighting for salience in your mind at any given moment. And some of them, you know, the jealous ones, the angry ones, the selfish ones, the greedy ones are, you know, ones you don't want to look at. And in some way, the shame sneaks in and is a very solipsistic sort of self-obsessed voice that tells you, you know, you are X or Y, you are permanently whatever. And then you're stuck. You don't want either you're stuck wallowing in it or you're stuck in denial of it or either is useful. But this third way of just recognizing that you are just a swirl, a constellation of all of this stuff. And then being able to step out of the fray and to view whatever's happening in your consciousness at any given moment with some warm, non-judgmental remove so you can respond wisely to things, then 
rather than reacting blindly. That's the proposition of meditation. And that's, I think, just such a radical game-changing option. It's so radical, like what you just said, so that you can respond, you know, like that you can see clearly, right? Just when does that happen? And um, one of my favorite mindfulness teachers is John Kabat-Zinn. And I was just having a call um, on a mastermind this morning. And I was saying, I love his idea that things are as they are and, and we can be with them as they are. And I think what I find with my listeners is that we'll do anything to avoid pain, right? So I don't want to publish my blog. I don't want to start my business because I might fail. I might feel pain. I might feel pain. I might feel pain. So what do you think about that? And what do you think about how meditation helps us be with what is? You know, just coming back to that word radical, it does allow you to slowly over time get better with the various forms of pain in your life. Meditation is not a bubble bath. That's a common misconception. That's in fact, it's one of the reasons why some people don't start because they see the traditional art of, that depicts meditators, you know, floating off into the cosmos, seemingly having cleared their minds, which, by the way, is an impossibility. And they think, well, I can't do that. Uh, and so they never even try. In fact, what meditation is inviting you to do is to see that what John likes to refer to, although it's not John's phrase, but John Kabat-Zinn likes to use a phrase from, uh, I think it was Zorba the Greek, the book Zorba, in which life is referred to as the full catastrophe. John uh, yeah. wrote mm -hmm. a book full called Catastrophe. Full Catastrophe yeah. Living. And so in meditation, you sit and allow it all to come. And some of it's going to be awesome and delicious. And a lot of it is going to be painful. You know, you're sitting in meditation and your leg hurts, or you have some murderous itch, like right under your nose or whatever. And can you learn to just be with it? Uh, as opposed to fighting or fleeing, which are our habitual evolutionarily wired responses. Can you, in fact, be mindful, just observing it, investigating it with some warmth and lack of judgment? So over time, you can reorient yourself in the face of the inevitable pain of being alive, the losing what we love, whether it's other people or how we look in the mirror or whatever it is, or the pain of the fear that you might feel when you talk about publishing your blog or starting your business. Can you have a little bit of a different relationship so that you're not so owned by the fear or unwilling to even come close to it? That can change your relationship to illness. It can change your relationship to fear in relationships, fear in your career, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a panacea. It's not magic. It's not the power of positive thinking, but it is actually workable. And there's a lot of science that shows that it helps. Mm. And it's so beautiful how you articulate that as well. What it sounds like is you keep going back to like the non-judging, right? It's just sort of holding it in curiosity, like just, oh, well, just noticing it, right? Like, look at that. And I don't need, I don't need to make a judgment about it. It seems as though we're all wired and conditioned from the earliest states of our being to just constantly criticize and judge. And there's no beginner's mind. It's just like a, it's a constant dance. And that shame just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And so for yourself, how do you feel you personally became then 10% happier? I'm, I'm, I assume now you're probably 40% happier, maybe 90%. Uh, before I answer that, would it be worth, Kathy, my describing a little bit? I, I fear that in the way that I've talked about meditation, it may sound a little abstract. Would it be worth my yeah, just let's saying a little bit about I what the it. practice is? Yeah, yep. okay. So listeners can get a sense that this is doable by anybody. Mm -hmm. So the basic beginner mindfulness meditation instructions, and there are thousands of kinds of meditation, but when I talk about meditation, and it sounds like when you do too, you're talking about mindfulness meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but secularized and mm -hmm. scientifically validated to a pretty amazing extent. Mm -hmm. So the beginning instruction is you sit quietly with your spine reasonably straight, if you don't want to sit, you can also lie down or just stand. And then you bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. By the way, you can close your eyes or not. If you don't want to close your eyes, you can kind of just gaze softly at a neutral spot. 
so that's all the first thing you kind of get into position in a quiet enough place. And if it's not quiet where you live, you, that's why the good Lord about whom I'm agnostic invented noise canceling headphones. Um, <laughs> and then you can bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. I'll just say a word that we often meditate on the breath, but you know, the breath is a kind of a loaded proposition in the era of COVID and also George Floyd. So if the breath is triggering to you, you can just pick something like the sensation of your body sitting or mm -hmm. the place where whatever your hands are touching, are they touching mm -hmm. each other or touching your legs, whatever, just pick one thing to focus on the breath or something else. And then every time you get distracted, you just start again because you will get distracted over and over and over and over again. People, when they get distracted in meditation, start thinking, well, I can't clear my mind. So I'm a failure. Deuces, I'm out. I can't do this. I'm never going to try. But in fact, the noticing you've become distracted, the waking up from the distraction is the moment not of failure, but of success. Yep. That's the goal of meditation, to familiarize yourself with your inner cacophony, with the voice in your head, so that you're not owned by it. Because when you see it clearly, you have the option to respond wisely to the suggestions that the voice in your head uh, makes it its business to offer up on the regular, rather than just being owned by your thoughts like tiny little dictators. And so what right. we're doing in meditation is <laughs> sitting and trying to focus on one thing. You're not trying to clear your mind. You're just trying to focus your mind for nanoseconds at a time, usually on the feeling of your breath or some other object. And then when you get distracted, you wake up from distraction, pat yourself on the back, escort your attention slowly back to your breath. And then again and again, over and over, waking up from distraction, starting again, starting again. And this is like a bicep curl for your brain. And it shows up on the brain scans of people who meditate. It literally yeah. changes the structure of your brain. And that's exciting. Yes, we all like seeing the colorful blobs on the MRI scans. But what's more exciting <laughs> is what's happening in your mind, which is, as I referenced before, when you become familiar with, more comfortable with, warmer with your own dramatis persona, your own cast of characters in your own mind, when you become, as the great meditation teacher Ram Das said, uh, a connoisseur, a sort of sommelier of your neuroses, then you're not so yanked around by them. You're in effect kind of cutting the strings of your malevolent puppeteer of ego. Mm -hmm. And that's really useful because then, you know, you're in the middle of an argument with your romantic partner and you feel the urge to say something that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of your life. <laughs> and instead of just acting on it blindly, you can let it come and go because everything just comes and goes. That's what you see in meditation. Or you have this urge to eat a sleeve of Oreos and you're like, uh... I can let this come and go instead of just acting it out. Nothing against Oreos. I eat them on the regular. I'm just saying that sometimes we're doing and saying things out of reflexive impulse or a habit instead of real consideration. And that's what mindfulness has helped me do to answer your question. That's the 10% happier. It's not going to work all the time, but it is a skill that like any good investment compounds annually and you get better and better at having an understanding of how your mind works and not as a consequence being owned or governed by it as much as you used to be. Mm. What a incredible freedom that is. I'm glad that you said what you did about how there's other options of what to focus on besides the breath because Years ago, I was studying at the Mark Center at UCLA, the Mindful Awareness Research Center, and I was there for a few years, and I was like, this is so hard. Like, my breath, I don't even really breathe. I realize I barely breathe anyway. It's so shallow. And then we did, like, a walking meditation, and then we did an eating meditation. I was like, oh, this is so much easier for me to focus on the balls of my feet touching the grass. So that's there. And then the other thing I wanted to just ask you is, like, for me, what I find is, like, a lot of pain and anxiety comes up when I sit still and I realize why I've been running so much from sitting there. And so there's a lot of discomfort for me when I'm meditating and sometimes it's peaceful. A lot of times it's anxiety provoking. I, I I'm forced to sit with what is there. And um, I wonder how do you help invite people to, to sit when it actually hurts? Well, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It does suck. And I will say that if you've got, you know, trauma in your background, you might want to do this exercise under the guidance of a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. But for most of us who have the 
as what my friend, Dr. Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist in New York City and has written a bunch of great books. One of the books was The Trauma of Everyday Life. So for right, most right. of us who have the kind of <laughs> garden variety trauma of having been born, I, I don't want to sugarcoat and say that meditation is, you know, as I said before, some sort of bubble bath because it isn't and you will see hard and difficult things. But those aspects of your personality and personal history are there. That's non-negotiable. Would you rather see them in the controlled environment of a meditation practice or not see them and have them drive you blindly from mm. unseen eddies in your mind? And I think the, you know the answer to that. And so would you rather go through the pain of an inoculation uh, or would you rather get the flu? Mm, you know, this beautiful. may be a little bit of a glib example, but sometimes we do things that are different. I ride on a Peloton bike. It's awful. <laughs> but, you know, it's great exercise and I'm healthier as a consequence. And exercise is actually less glib comp because we put ourselves, our bodies through this thing. And yeah, it may be pleasurable in some ways, but a lot of it sucks. And so this is an exercise for your mind so that you can allow your habitual thought patterns and, you know, ancient resentments. You know, for me, I see a lot of anger or rushing or self-regard or whatever that I don't want to see, but I'd rather see it within the container of my meditation practice than have it just dominate all of my relationships. Wow, that's so good. I've never heard it put that way. I love that. All right, I have a few more questions, but first a quick ad break. Indeed knows it is a cautious time for businesses across America. Uncertainty flavors every decision. Every financial commitment is vetted. And now your next important hire is more crucial than ever. Thankfully, Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. You have full control and payment flexibility over your hiring and you only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search easier like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result the higher. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash DreamJob. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash DreamJob. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. I love how what you keep sort of alluding to is just how powerful the awareness of it is. You know, that if there's an awareness, you're likely to not let it trip you up. I mean, that in and of itself is powerful to think that just by being aware of something, it, it may not then be something you trip over. It is like they say in AA, you know, the first step is admitting it. And so there is something really liberating about just seeing, oh, yeah, I'm angry right now. Uh, you can know you're angry and still be owned by it, by the way, but just to actually like a true mindful awareness of anger would be to not be in it so much, but just for a few nanoseconds at a time to be able to step out of the anger, to examine how it's showing up in your body, to have the knowing that one can generate from meditation that it will come and go, which gives you the confidence that you don't have to act out of the anger at any given moment. doesn't mean you will be perfect. I personally retain the capacity to be a complete schmuck. But you know, 10% of the time, 20% of the time, I'm not so owned by my anger, not so as likely to be carried away by a fit of peak. And I would say, you know, it's the awareness, which is the term or the mindfulness, the non-judgmental awareness that gets talked about in meditation a lot. I, I know for me, there was a huge part of that that was missing a key component of the mindfulness that was missing for me, and this is something I'm going to try to correct in my next book, was that it's not just non-judgment, but also, as we discussed earlier, a warmth. Part of being, and this yeah. goes back to Buddhism, but the way mindfulness is discussed in a Buddhist context is mm. that the clear seeing is co-arising with for lack of a less lofty term, a kind of love. And I don't mean love in the, you know, string music, Hollywood variety. I just mean a, a sense of warmth, of uh, caring <laughs> that can see your own anger. You can see it clearly. But for me, I was often seeing my anger or my rushing or whatever, my selfishness 
with a, just a, t a hint of aversion. I didn't want it to be here. Now I'm a little bit more like, welcome to the party. It's all good. I get that this is just, you know, part of my conditioning. Struggling with it is, is going to just make it stronger. That if I can, you know, welcome whatever is going on in my mind with some warmth, give it a party hat, then that is a way to disarm it that is really quite powerful. And I think that the warmth or the love aspect of mindfulness has mm -hmm. in its secularization been de-emphasized and I'm part of the problem here. Yeah. And so I would say it's, it's awareness and warmth or friendliness. I'm so glad you're saying it because so often on this show and, and everywhere you look, people are telling you how to crush your goals, how to be successful. And we have to begin with what's here first. And very often people start taking a few steps forward and then they're, they're, all that criticism comes up. And like you said 20 minutes ago, it's just survival skills. Like we've all been through stuff and our heart gets broken and we learn to protect ourselves. And so to have some compassion and some love for that is really important. And are you familiar with this doctor? I just saw him for the first time. So I can't say if I'm all in or not, but I, I, will, I saw one video of his, Zach Bush. Have you seen this guy? No. So anyway, he, he's an ICU doctor and he's also into like eating vegan and anyway, but he was talking about how in the ICU, he's often the hero who resuscitates people when they go into cardiac arrest. And apparently you're only able to do that about 6% of the time. But in any case, he said that the other night he resuscitated three totally different people. One was like a little kid, one was an older gentleman, and one was a woman. And this wasn't from COVID. It was different. They had different issues. But in any case, he said that all three of them said what everybody says in their own words when they come back which is some version of when they sort of had this experience, what they felt, whatever, for whatever it's worth, was they say something to the, to the extent of, for the first time in my life, I felt completely and utterly accepted for who I am, whatever that means. And he was like, isn't it amazing that we see death as some like contraction, but yet for these people, there's that feeling that this is what people say to him. And I think what's fascinating is like, it's like, that's what's missing in this lifetime. It's like this feeling of a hundred percent, just acceptance of what we are. And you're, you continue to keep going back to that. Like there's just such a uh, resistance to ourself. And so I think that that's probably a cause for most of the, the pain that's in the world. And you're saying it over and over. Yeah, and I don't think it's complacency. I don't think it's like, oh, yeah, I noticed that I have a tendency to be angry and self-righteous at times. Good for me. Like, let's let that run rampant. I think it's about seeing it, hopefully, in your own personal historical context, how this might have happened, that it's some sort of not-so-skillful self-protection mechanism, right. and then making a wiser choice. And by the way, I'm all for crushing your goals. I'm not a quietist or passive. I'm not saying that we should be resigned in the face of social injustice or that we shouldn't have ambitious personal goals for our careers. I'm pro getting off the couch. But I just think you got to kind of take a look at where is all of that energy coming from? Are you motivated by unmitigated greed and oceanic anger, or are you coming from someplace else? And so over time, not that I'm, I lack either greed or anger, but over time, just turning down the volume on that stuff mm -hmm. so that other things can emerge like, you know, the desire to be useful to other people, for example. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the Tibetans have a phrase for enlightenment, which is translates into a clearing away and a bringing forth. And that's really my current view on this, what this practice is doing is like turning down the volume on some of the uglier aspects of our nature and the turning down of the volume has to happen in a warm, acceptable way. You can't beat it out of yourself. It just doesn't work, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. And once you've turned down the volume and you can bring forth these other aspects of your nature that are also there, but often not given as much airtime. Mm. So speaking of airtime, you have an amazing podcast that's been just so beloved and same name as um, your book, 10% Happier. You, you've gotten to sit down with some of the most incredible minds 
What do you feel like you've gotten from having those interviews? Is there something that has surprised you that you feel you've learned from all these people that you've spoken to? Yeah, I mean, so many things. It'll be hard to list them all. I'll try to list a few that just come to mind. Mm -hmm. But in these interviews, I have seen time and again how I was underplaying the friendliness aspect of mindfulness. That it's not enough to just see your junk clearly. You really do need to have some warmth in there or else you're adding aversion into the system, which is a form of fighting with it. You're being aware of what's going on, but with the unseen agenda of wanting it to go away. Right. So that's one thing I've taken away. Another is talking to a lot of scientists who study human flourishing and well-being, which is a growing area of science, really seeing this confirmation of what is probably pretty obvious, but massively overlooked and underappreciated in our society, which is that as the great couples therapist, uh, Esther Perel, Mm -hmm. has said, the quality of your relationships will determine the quality of your life. We are so focused on our stock portfolios and our, you know, our bodies and our careers and to our social media profiles, et cetera, et cetera, to the detriment often of our relationships. And it is community relationships. We are a social species. As another one of my guests pointed out, we're the first generation to have disbanded the tribe, which is a problem when you're a tribal species. Wow. So we don't have the social connections that we used to have. And it is argued, I think, with some real heft is contributing to this epidemic of depression, loneliness, anxiety, addiction, suicide. And so, yeah, I would say those are two things that come to mind as things that I've learned and am definitely playing a prominent role in this next book I'm struggling to complete. Mm, That's really, really powerful. That whole piece about connection. And I was reading that, you know, before the pandemic, just the rates of suicide and depression were just so staggering. Like it's just almost shocking to see what it was like in this country, 2019. And now we're talking about all this social distance, right? And I'm just curious, do you think that this social distance will actually create more connection or less? I don't know. I mean, I do fear that we were, we went into the pandemic with a lot of mental health issues in the society And I do fear that they're going to be put on steroids by social distance, by fraying of the social fabric we're seeing by uh, economic decline. I do fear that. I mean, there are data points that argue to the contrary. You know, when you see people banding together around causes they care about, we see people engaged in just incredible acts of generosity and service from healthcare workers to Mm -hmm. just regular neighbors people who work at food banks. So I think it's a little too early to tell. So I'm kind of left with a lot of concern about this and some reason for hope. And I've just seen in my own life, you know, with the caveat that I'm massively privileged, or if you want a less PC sounding word, very, very lucky. But I have seen in my own life that I've used this situation as an opportunity to create more community, to strengthen ties. For example, we had the incredible good fortune to be able to move out of New York City in the middle of all this. We got a house in the suburbs with my cousin, who's a single mom, so and has a kid six months older than my kid. So just that in and of itself was a big boost in community and and social connection, and you know, and having outside playdates while the weather's still warm and you know, making it our business to really try to connect as much as possible on the phone, et cetera, with other with people in our lives. Or when we lived in the city every night, we would meet in the hallway with our 85-year-old neighbor. So just really trying to make this a practice yeah. has redounded to my personal well-being. Again, with the caveat that I have a lot of luck that most people don't have. Yeah. It's interesting because Malcolm Gladwell was on the show and his take on Black Lives Matter was interesting in the sense that he said, I've been talking about this for years. And he said, I think the reason this summer we saw what we saw is because of COVID, because of social distance, because people were not distracted, they were able to really hear it and come together, which I thought is really powerful. And so hopefully there's opportunity for people to step forward now because there's such a spotlight on the idea that we definitely need each other more than ever. 
And hopefully they'll be listening to your podcast because I can't think of a, a more necessary time to start meditating or to start looking at some of the way we've been doing what we're doing because the way we've been living is really not sustainable for our mental health. So what in this moment, as we're sort of signing off, what do you really want to say to everybody? You know, like what's, what are you hoping people walk away with when they listen to your podcast or, or read your books? I would say that the animating insight for me and all the work I've done over the past decade or so is that the mind is trainable. We have this conscious or subconscious assumption that we're stuck with our characteristics, our character, our personality, like it's factory settings that are unalterable. But what the science around meditation is showing us, and this is incredibly empowering, and back to that word we've already used, radical good news, is that all of the skill, all of the mental qualities we want, calm, peace of mind, generosity, compassion, connection, gratitude, these are not factory settings. These are skills mm. that are trainable. And that is why we do things like meditation and other forms of training the mind. And I would add just to, to bolster the point that Malcolm Gladwell made, which I, with which I agree, you know, another area where when we've been focusing a lot on this in the podcast, a lot is on bias and that we can work with our own mm -hmm. minds, if we're willing to mm -hmm. look with some warmth and without so much shame at our own racism, if we can look at that, then we have an opportunity not to be so owned by it. And that's a really exciting, although very painful proposition. Mm, that's so beautiful. I'm so happy you said that. Okay, final question. So <clears throat> the listeners here, the thing they really want to do is find their life's work and they want to be able to find success. And not only have you been able to become 10% happier, but you, you have no doubt a very successful career by, by anybody's yardstick. And I'm curious what you would think about how meditation, how what you've been doing in your practice might relate to helping people find more success in their work. Is there anything you want to say to tie that together that might give them a little bit of a an instruction or any kind of tip that might help that you've noticed, oh, I think this actually could help you in this way be more successful in your work. I'll speak more from just personal experience and hopefully it's applicable, okay. but there are two levels to this. One, the level of how meditation can just make you better at your job, but also better at life right now, which is, I think the three main mechanisms for that is one, a boosted ability to be calm in the face of you know, the various vexations of life to an, a boosted ability to stay on task or boost focus, uh, which is borne out by the neuroscience, which shows that meditation can rewire the parts of the brain associated with attention regulation and focus is hugely important to every aspect of life mm -hmm. pretty much. And then the third is this mindfulness that we've been talking about all along, which is the ability not to be so owned by your emotions and urges and random thoughts and instead to surf them a little bit more skillfully can improve your relationships. And what we know about work in the modern context is, is incredibly team-oriented and collaborative, increasingly so. Yep. And so to, the ability to have good relationships at work is just in so many industries, a uh, sine qua non. And then in terms of finding success or figuring out what your life's work is, for me, it's been useful because it goes back a little bit to turning down the volume of the, the clearing away and bringing forth that the less salience that the sort of noise has in my mind and the more I'm able to kind of figure out what do I really like? Yeah. What do I really care about? What actually makes me happy? That has been an incredible sort of compass for me as I, my career has changed radically in the six and a half years since that first book came out where, you know, I was all in on TV news and now I'm, I still have a foot in the TV news world, but I'm increasingly doing what I'm doing with you right now is talking about meditation. And that is in part because opportunities have opened up for me, but also because I'm better able to kind of see what it is that I actually care about, what I really like and go after that. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you know this, it's, it's sort of cliche at this point, but the number one regret that's been researched around people dying is I didn't live life on my terms. And I think the more you, you're spending time in inquiry and meditation, you can sort of, like you said, see clearer, you know, what really is here and what is just sort of you doing things to please other people or out of fear. And, and you can kind of, there's a little bit of a clearing. And I also just, the second to last thing you said, I feel is very true. Like as soon as you came on today, there's like a presence. And I feel like you said, work is very collaborative. And I felt for myself after I spent a few years meditating, when I would walk in a room, there was just more resonance between me and the other person, because I was like actually there in the room and just having that kind of even like eye contact where you're actually there. You're not thinking about what you were doing yesterday or you're not focused on the stress of tomorrow. You're like just in the room with another human being and making space. It's so powerful. Like that can lead to the most amazing non-agenda kind of conversations, which I, I think we don't often usually have. And so I could feel that already, you know, even from when you said hello. That's why I love being around people who, who have some kind of practice because they're, they're very present. Well, thank you. I like that. Everything you just said very much. <laughs> so tell us where we can find your awesome podcast and your books and, and all the rest. Uh, podcasts is available wherever you're listening to your podcast right now. Check it out. 10%. I guess we changed the spelling. It used to, the book is, has the number 10 on it, but for reasons that I still don't fully understand now, <laughs> uh, the podcast is T-E-N-P-E-R-C-N-T, happier. And so is the app that podcast is associated with an app that teaches you how to meditate. We have all these amazing meditation teachers so in cool. there. And yeah, that's kind of my, increasingly my baby. That's so cool. Dan, you're doing such important work in this world. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I really love talking to Dan. So here are the takeaways. Number one, you don't have to struggle and slay your dragons. Instead, blow them a kiss and give them a hug. Number two, recognize that you are just a swirl of constellation. Then step out of the fray and view whatever happens in your consciousness without judgment, but with warmth so you can respond wisely rather than react blindly. Number three, noticing that you're distracted is not the moment of failure, but of success. The goal of meditation is not to clear your mind. It's to familiarize yourself with the inner cacophony in your head so you're not owned by it. Number four, welcome in whatever's going on in your mind and give it a party hat. Number five, the quality of your relationships will determine the quality of your life. Use this as an opportunity to create more community and strengthen ties. And number six, the mind is trainable. All the mental qualities we want, like the peace of mind, generosity, compassion, connection, and the gratitude are not factory settings. They're skills that we can program into ourselves. Guys, it means so much to me that you listen to this show. I am super clear that there's a million things on your to-do list and your time is the most valuable resource you have. So thank you so much for spending it here. We have so many more amazing conversations coming up. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because it's completely free. And did I mention Matthew McConaughey is going to be here? Oh my gosh. So definitely subscribe wherever you listen because you're not going to want to miss out on that. And let me ask you this. Did you learn something from this episode? Have you learned anything at all that you think somebody else could benefit from? If so, go ahead and post about this in your Instagram and tag me at kathy.heller so that I can repost and then tag a friend and say, hey, this show is inspiring me and I think you might enjoy it. I'm at kathy.heller on Instagram. Kathy's spelled with a C. I love you. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you on Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. So many times I chose to run. So many times I held my tongue. I held my tongue. Never saying what I needed to.
got the heart of a hero.